From MIT Technology Review, I'm Elizabeth Bramson Boudreau. And this is Business Lab, the show that helps business leaders make sense of new technologies coming out of the lab and into the marketplace. This episode is brought to you by Citrix, the company powering the digital transformation inside organizations of all sizes. I'll be talking later in the show with Citrix's chief security strategist, Kurt Romer. He's going to help us with the big question we're tackling in this episode, which is, how can we build workplaces that actually work? I mean, when you're designing an office space, is it better to give everyone private space to think? Or is there more collaboration and communication when everyone shares a big open plan space? If you're trying to build strong teams, is it better to make everyone show up at the office every day from 9 to 5? Or is it okay to let people have flexible hours and work remotely to suit personal or family needs? Companies are trying it all different ways. And for managers, the only constant seems to be anxiety that we're not getting it right. I know we're still trying to figure that out here in our offices at Technology Review. Well, it turns out that new technology may offer some real answers. Our first guest today is Ben Weber. Ben is a former MIT Media Lab doctoral student who's now president and CEO of a Boston startup called Humanize. Humanize makes software and sensors that give companies a better idea of how people actually work. Not just how workers move around an office, but how communication happens between teams and how all of that predicts performance. It's all giving rise to a new science Humanize calls people analytics. And Ben is here to explain it to us. Ben, it's wonderful to have you here. Thanks for coming. No, thanks for having me here. So uh, Humanize is a spin-off company from the MIT Media Lab. I know that the work you were doing here at MIT sort of inspired the spin-off of Humanize. Yeah. Um, but can you tell us a little more? Can you paint a picture of the origin story? Sure. Um, so my co-founders and I, we had been using uh, sensors in the uh, lab to try to study things like salary negotiation. And uh, the question there was based on, you know, how people spoke, not words, but just the way that people talk. Could you predict, you know, for example, who's going to win a negotiation? Um, and you could really accurately with about 85% accuracy. So you're talking about things like tone of voice? Tone of or voice. Or body language? Interruptions. Mm -hmm. um, body language as well really does matter. Um, and these were things where especially as social ecologists who had studied these things for decades, you know, typically what you do to study those kind of uh, features is you'd have some poor grad student right, record a video of an interaction, and then they'd have to go frame by frame through the video over, you know, weeks for a single conversation to figure out what was going on. But what we could do now is with, with sensors and with, uh, obviously, you know, more and more powerful um, algorithms, we could actually process that, you know, in a matter of seconds. And... So originally, as we were starting our PhDs, we were doing this still in the lab. But then one day, we had a professor from, from Sloan, from the business school here, say, well, what you're doing in the lab is really interesting. But actually, um, you know, I've been collecting things like email data and surveys in really large companies. And it seems like face-to-face -face interaction data you know, from sensors would be a really good way to understand holistically how people work. Because you have to understand that you can go to pretty much any company in the world and ask really basic questions about what goes on internally that people can't answer. Like, how much does management talk to the engineering team? Nobody knows. Uh, even how many hours do people work? And you think about how simple those questions are, how critical they are. 
And the reason people can't answer them is they don't have data, right? Now, you use surveys, you use human observers, but we all know how that's limited, right? Um, so we go to this major German bank. We just thought that was a cool idea, first of all. We'd never done anything like that before. We'd gotten the sensors in particular to work for something like two hours straight, and now we're being asked to get them to work for months at a time without any of our intervention. And we're collecting all this email data, survey data at the same time. And we even got to Germany uh, to start. Um, so you did this on behalf of a German company. They said, try it out here. Yeah, Is this that what was, happened? I mean, it was our research, right? But this was um, our collaborators over at Sloan had already been working in this bank. And so now we were just able to insert these additional sensors into it. And we collected this pretty massive amount of data about how much people worked. Right? I mean, on average at that time, we were collecting about four gigabytes per person per day. And just to be clear about the data itself, it's not audio content. Um, we don't even collect data with names or email addresses or anything. It's essentially, you know, tone of voice, volume, how quickly you speak, location within the office, from email as well. Again, it's not content. It's who communicates with who, when, how often. And we had all this data. And we also had performance data and turnover data from this company. And no one had ever looked at any data like this before. And the question was, well, could we maybe predict performance? Long story short, we could really, really accurately, about six times better than all the other data put together. We wrote a number of papers on this, but after we wrote the first paper, we, of course, we sent it to the leadership team at this bank because they had been nice enough to let us uh, do this. And when they saw the results, they said, well, this is great. We're going to do a reorg based on this analysis. Right? And this was you know, a paper a couple of grad students wrote. Right? And this multi-billion dollar company was going to completely re-engineer the way they work based on our analysis. Okay, so let's go back and talk about the way that you're gathering this data, collecting this data. You mentioned sensors. What's that mean? There's two broad ways we collect data. One is digital data. So this is data that I mean, essentially every company in the world already has. Email, chat, meeting data. Uh, again, not content, but really looking at the metadata from those platforms. Who communicates with who, when, how often, that so sort of thing. you Slack. Slack, yeah. Uh, we work mostly with really big companies, which none of them really use Slack, but we can hook into Slack. We use Slack. Um, so for most people, it's G Suite, um, Office 365 Exchange, that sort of thing. Um, the other side is sensors. And there's still two classes of sensors. So there's some that really are an evolution of what we developed at MIT, which are essentially a next-generation company ID badge. And if you use a regular badge to tap into a building, it's typically got RFID in it, which is a sensor. It's a radio. If I put little RFID readers in the ceiling, I can figure out where everybody is. Besides uh, <laughs> being a little creepy, that doesn't tell you how people are collaborating, how they're interacting. It tells you that they are in the same space. Exactly, which is still useful, first of all. But really at MIT, what we, what we saw pretty quickly was that the fact that, for example, you and I are talking right now is actually really important rather than just sitting next to each other. And we need some way to determine that. So in these next generation badges, we have two microphones, which again, don't record audio, but in real time, figure out, first of all, that you're talking, your tone of voice, your volume, how quickly you're speaking. We have an accelerometer that looks at posture so we can figure out how, um, how much we're mirroring each other, um, which gets very interesting. We can, of course, also do location within the office. I have one here, which I apologize. People who are listening are going to have to imagine it. 
basically have this ID badge that looks like a regular ID. It's yeah, a it's a little thicker. It's little kind thicker. of a souped-up ID badge. That's right. But it's the same size, and he's got it on a kind of a key fob like uh, probably most people listening have access to. Right? That's right. And so what that has is in it uh, is a Bluetooth sensor. It's got a couple of other environmental sensors. The battery lasts for two years. It knows where I am within my office. It, again, can also then transmit in real time some other very simple information. But the point is, two million people have that. From that, it's still hard to recognize interactions. Again, we would need other sensors in the space to do that. But that's coming. And so typically what we're doing is across all or a large section of an employee population, we're using all that data that already exists, so typically from digital communication and existing sensors. Um, and then for really important groups where you've got a really big problem, that's where for a uh, limited amount of time, you'll probably roll out these, these souped up badges uh, and then rotate them to different groups. Okay, so, so I would really like to dig in a little bit more into the kinds of findings that you've been able to develop through these tools. So tell us, what can you see about the way work actually gets done in organizations that you, you know, that's been traditionally hard to see? And what kinds of new insights are you surfacing through this work? Yeah. Um, there's a lot because we have a lot of data. Um, so I'll try to name just some of the top things that I find just personally interesting. Uh, one of the big ones, and, and something I see just a lot of companies looking at more and more closely, is around um, physical location of work. And I mean that pretty broadly, right? So I want to open a new office. Where should I do it? I want to build a new headquarters. Which division should I put there? Um, even then within a single building, within a single office, which group should I put next to each other? Traditionally, those things are very subjective and political in that I'm an executive, and I read some article, uh, maybe in the tech review, about what Google does. And I say, Google's cool. Let me do the same thing as them. And that's crazy, right? Like, that's not the way you should run your business. You are not Google, right? Um, beyond that, for a lot of these things, Google is just like most other companies, doing things very subjectively. You know, the question is, how would a particular decision change the way your people work? And so there's this basic question, well, in our company, when we put two groups next to each other, how will that change how they collaborate? Because the vast majority of companies are making these workplace decisions or uh, workforce decisions to try to change how people work. But if you don't measure that, it's very hard for you to understand if what you're doing is actually effective or not. And so one of the things that's been most fascinating is, and again, this is now over millions of people, I can see that no matter what communication channel you look at, email, chat, phone calls, face-to-face I mean, -face communication, the likelihood that you will communicate with somebody is directly proportional to how close you are from a desk perspective. Mm. If we sit next to each other, we tend to email each other more. We tend to chat more. As you get pretty much onto different floors, you might as well be in another city. You still have the meetings, Right? But again, if you're remote, you're still going to have the meetings too. And I think that's the challenge with a lot of these, um, with these tools and with these decisions, is that people assume that, okay, if I put everyone in one building, it doesn't matter how big the building is, everyone's still going to communicate, which isn't really true. Um, but then beyond that, you think, well, I can communicate with everyone. I have the tools to do that. So I don't have to do any work 
to make sure that people collaborate effectively. And that's also not true. Wow. Okay. This is quite a conclusion, given how much energy and sort of thought is going into remote working and people, um, you know, working at home. And there's been a lot of talk about whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. And certain companies have said, no, 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 we're not going to allow it anymore. Um, what are you? What does this mean for the folks who want to have a little bit more of a flexible? Um, or more balanced uh, attitude towards work and home and, and say more about what the, what the implications of that could be. Just to be clear, the, the data is pretty clear that if, you know, one day a week or something, you're working from home, it, it doesn't significantly change how people collaborate. Right? But there's a big difference between that and literally never being in the same physical place as your coworkers. Right? And again, I think a lot of times those distinctions get lost and I think that, that, again, that a lot of the times those decisions are made just on a cost basis. You know, people are a cost and people are cheaper here. So I'm going to pick the cheaper thing. But what we actually care about is performance, right? If people are 30% more expensive here, but it makes us more than 30% more, more effective, then I'm doing that. The issue is it's been really hard to show those kind of effects in the past. And what you're now seeing is companies can start to make those calculations I love the data approach to something that's, you know, kind of inherently woolly or hard to you know, pin down. Um, and I find it a little creepy. So let's talk about the privacy element of it, the sense that kind of we're being, we're watching employees. Um, how do you mitigate the concerns that I'm sure you hear about a lot yeah. from, uh, from both employees and the folks who are bringing you in? Yeah. And those are legitimate concerns, right? Um, there are certain things that we do, which are that, again, if we're deploying new sensors, we deploy on an opt-in basis. Uh, we don't collect any names or email addresses. Uh, beyond that, everything, all the metrics we provide to our customers is aggregated. Um, we never show uh, any data points with less than five people um, unless there's noise added, and then it's statistically completely anonymous. Um, but that's important, right? Because then... You can't see what is person A doing at 2.30 on Tuesday because who cares? There's not really a good business use case for that. And we can all think about how that can be abused, right? What you do need to know is, all right, maybe you have top performers. What do they do differently than everybody else? Not a single person because that could be a total outlier. I want to see the distribution, right? In a similar way, these teams need to work more a lot with each other. Is that happening? Or again, for our customers, for example, in Japan, I really care about overwork, right? I really want to make sure that we're not... Um, you, you know, having people, you know, work a ton, what percentage of our workforce works more than, you know, 80 hours a week? If I roll out a program to reduce that, does it change that? But it's these big macro level things. Let's talk a little bit about physical space. Um, so uh, we've heard a lot about the trend toward open offices, now away from open offices, um, where no one has any private space and people put their noise-canceling headphones on. Um, do you have a philosophy or a point of view about what is the best way to design an office? That was a good, that was a good question because a lot of times people ask, what is the best office? Which, of course, there is no answer to that. What I would say is you really want to understand what kind of behaviors you want to create. Um, you, of course, also need to consider things like the public image of the company. So branding um, also does matter. Um, and then you want to understand, well, what are the trade-offs 
as you weigh both this public image as well as the internal actual function of how this space will change behaviors. And different spaces for different companies with different cultures, you know, do different things. We, for example, you know, at our headquarters here in Boston, we do have an open office. At the same time, we have lots of big movable whiteboards. And so, for example, right now, the engineering team, uh, there's a big wall of whiteboards um, on one side of them so that they're essentially separated from um, the commercial side of the business, um, which is actually on another wing. But there's a visual separation also separates noise as well. Um, and I can quantify what those things do. They can also move them around depending if they want to have uh, even smaller sections. They can do that. Um, but again, I can tell you with some of our other customers, uh, even in those environments, you would actually dramatically reduce the amount of interaction um, within teams. I mean, you probably actually increase it between teams. But what I would say is that given the culture of a company, the impact of space is relatively consistent, relatively. So that if in one part of the company, we have an office that looks like this, I can predict fairly confidently that if I put that same type of an office uh, you know, in another division, it would probably have a similar impact. To, to your point, you get these big trends that fall in and out of favor, right? So you know, now open office is falling out of favor maybe a little bit. But then, you know, do you move to cubicles? And then it, it just goes, it cycles, right? And rather than saying this kind of office is cool and that's what we should do because it's cool, you can say, well, that does matter to a certain extent. But given what behaviors we want to create, that's why we picked this thing. And what we can also admit is we're not sure if that's going to work, right? I'm not sure if I let people work from home two days a week, is that going to be good? If we have an open office here, but then private offices here, is that going to be good? These are hypotheses. Mm -hmm. So it's more of an iterative approach. Yeah. And and it needs to be, even because even if today I find an office design across my whole business, which is going to be a mix of different spaces, that is effective, your company changes, business changes. And so the behaviors that are effective today, you know, in a couple months, especially years, are not going to be effective. And so there is actually a need to keep even, it's not just finding one thing and then doing that forever. It's let's keep changing. But the best way to keep changing isn't waiting for some external market signal to say, hey, your offices look old. It's okay, when we're now not aligned with the behaviors that we need to create to be successful, we need to try something else. So is there, you know, a workplace engineer role that might uh, might emerge, you know, someone whose d- job it is to think about what the algorithms are saying, what the plan is for the day, what the goals of the company are, what maybe the, some weak spots or frailties might be? This is actually what we're seeing in our customers. Uh, one of our longest running customers who's been using our technology for over four years, um, they now have a team, an internal organizational analytics team of, I think, 17 people now. Literally, their only job is to use um, our analytics to manage the business. And that's everything from workplace decisions to HR decisions to IT tools to operation. I mean, you name it. Right? And then they're um, actually all of their um, divisional leaders um, and the C-suite every quarter meet for half a day. And all they do is review these metrics. And they say, well, you know, is this what we want? Here are the initiatives we're going to plan to change these specific behaviors, and then we're going to check back on them next next month. Now, they're not the ones who are looking at this sort of stuff on a daily basis, 
But I think the fact that we're seeing, you know, Fortune 100 companies do that um, is really important. And I think it's going to be a model that others follow. Well, this is great. Thank you very much, Ben, for sharing this with us. Yeah, no, thanks so much for, uh, for taking the time. This is the second in a three-part series of episodes on the future of knowledge work sponsored by Citrix. Citrix has put a lot of thought into how to make workplaces more worker-friendly. So we wanted to round out this episode with a conversation with Kurt Romer. Kurt is Chief Security Strategist at Citrix. That's an important role at a time when knowledge workers are accessing company data and applications from all different locations on all sorts of devices. So I wanted to ask Kurt what Citrix is doing to help people work productively and securely, no matter where they are. You do have people who are primarily working from non-traditional locations these days. So instead of going into an office every day and sitting in an office or cubicle, they're working from airplanes, they're working from home, they're working from hotel rooms and uh, especially public areas as well. And the challenge there is to work on things that are risk appropriate. I sat next to a tax attorney on an airplane, had no idea that he was a tax attorney until I looked over and he's working on his corporate tax returns. And that's some very sensitive data subject to you know government and SEC regulations. He should not have been doing that within uh, the purview of a lot of other people on the airplane. And you also hear walking through airports, uh, salespeople who are trying to close deals and are talking about some very sensitive data very loud over their cell phones. And you know, part of this is helping to make sure that you're encouraging people to do the right things, giving them training, but increasingly the technology can come into play and help us to work in risk-appropriate ways. Uh, in this episode of the podcast, we've been digging into how to organize workplaces and workforces. In this particular conversation, it's about how to design an office to encourage greater communication and productivity within the office. We've also talked about how to achieve the right balance between on-site face-to-face work and telecommuting and remote work. Um, What do you think that business leaders should be thinking about when they want to take a decision about changing the layout of the office to make it more open or or indeed maybe less open? Um, And then I'm going to ask you the same question about telecommuting. Yeah, when I take a look at this, um, you know, office layout in the workspace should really balance the benefits of collaboration along with individuality and privacy. Everyone works in slightly different ways, and there are some uh, generational work biases and practices that need to be understood and accommodated. In other words, you might have some people who, if they're in an open area with a whole bunch of other people and you know maybe they're working in a call center or they're working collaboratively on a project, uh, they're the most effective. You might have some other people that for them to think they need it quiet or they need to be able to have their own space. They should have a room to be able to go in and, and have that space. And likewise, if you're a manager having a sensitive conversation with an employee, you need to be able to do that in more of a, a private 
room type of environment. So you need to have both available. And it's really helping people to migrate to the type of work environment and office space that makes the most sense for them for what they're doing at, at that point in time. And um, oftentimes getting people together and encouraging collaboration really opens up some of the uh, the benefits of, of people being in the same space and uh, really building off of each other's ideas. So that can be uh, can be very rewarding, but it can be overwhelming to some people who just don't like the constant background noise. And how about telecommuting? Yeah, telecommuting is kind of a, a special challenge. As we had talked before about working from airports and hotel rooms and, and others, people are working from a lot of non-traditional locations. And so telecommuting is not just working from home. It's really how can you be productive regardless of where you're working from. Uh, part of it is understanding the the physical needs. Do you have some place that's quiet, some place that can appropriately protect your privacy when it's needed and sensitive information? And um, do you also have a culture that helps to encourage people to work together regardless of where they are? You know, in other words, you've got somebody who really doesn't come into the office very often. How are they still seen as part of the team and how to individuals and the rest of the team communicate and collaborate with them and bring them in even when something would have been a last minute type of uh, water cooler conversation, for example. So what do your Citrix offices look like and how common is telecommuting uh, for Citrix? From a Citrix perspective, we have uh, open collaborative offices. We've got private space that people can use. We've got uh, space that even as contractors or customers come in, they're able to go in and utilize a, a private area. And they've got a system that they can go in and get to their web and SaaS and um, workspace uh, remotely without even having to think twice about it, be able to log directly in. And um, we also encourage people to work in uh, offices throughout the world as well as work from home when it makes sense. So you might have someone who has young children and uh, the best thing for them is to be able to be there with those young children during certain times of the day. Uh, Why burden them with having to come into an office when they're going to be much more productive and much more satisfied if you give them a little bit of flexibility a few times a week. And that's been a real boon for us at Citrix. It's really knowing that people are working more, knowing that they're working uh, from home, oftentimes right when they get up, but giving them flexibility to be able to uh, work from anywhere and um, be able to use that to help fit their lifestyle and help benefit the, the company and our customers. Do you think that your uh, physical offices and the way that you organize your workforce uh, remotely versus in office, have you been able to kind of test this uh, new ideas and uh, new products within Citrix organization as sort of a Petri dish or a guinea pig? Yeah, we, uh, we bring our customers into our offices fairly often, especially for our Executive Insights program, where we bring in executives, talk to them about our vision and future direction, and then also show them our offices and how people are collaborating. And it's, uh, it's a big point of interest because many other organizations are still struggling with how do we move from cube farms and how do we move from more of a traditional environment to a more collaborative environment. And we're able to show them how people are working, um, how they have information displayed, and uh, where they can go if they're working on something more private. 
And and what about how all this impacts the experience of being an employee? So retention or even um, uh, recruitment. Do you see a, a difference in companies' ability to retain employees when they have sorted through uh, workspace and workforce management? Yeah, definitely. If you can show an employee that they're able to help manage their own employee experience and uh, if there's a major snowstorm, instead of having to spend an extra six hours on the road, they can work from home and be able to utilize that six hours to be productive as opposed to be frustrated. It's a simple example, but it plays out quite often throughout the winter, and uh, it, it really helps people to be much more satisfied with their work. And then from a workspace perspective, instead of having to remember to open certain applications to go in and and do work, instead of having to go through and search for information that you need or might be relevant for you today, including news, if your workspace presents all of that to you, you have much less um, action that you have to take on your behalf to to think about what you've got to do to be prepared. Your workspace is helping you be prepared to be the most productive at that particular point in time. And as analytics evolve, will definitely help you prioritize work as well so that you're working on the most meaningful things at that point. Well, Kurt, thank you so much for talking to me about this. Thank you, Elizabeth. That's it for this episode of Business Lab. I'm your host, Elizabeth Bramson Boudreau. I'm the CEO and publisher of MIT Technology Review. We were founded in 1899 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. You can find us in print, on the web, at dozens of live events each year, and now in audio form. For more information about us, please check out our website at technologyreview.com. This show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Business Lab is a production of MIT Technology Review. The producer for this episode is Wade Rausch, with editorial help from Mindy Blodgett. Thank you to our sponsor, Citrix, the company creating people-centric solutions for a better way to work. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with our next episode.